0: I think I preached about mothers on Mother's Day, and here I wrote this sermon, and it wasn't until probably last night that I remembered that today is Father's Day, so I apologize because this is not a Father's Day sermon. If you were expecting a Father's Day sermon this morning, I apologize, but I'm sure, praise the Lord, so many preachers are preaching online now. If you feel like you just need a Father's Day sermon, I know there's got to be a good one out there, and if you need a link to I can find one for you. There's some good preachers out there. it's been good to connect with people online in a way that that we haven't really done yet. You know, we've had social media for a long time, but the church hasn't made as much use of it until now. And I'm happy to see that we are using the tools that we have. Let's not become so depressed about what we don't have that we forget about what we do have. So I'm happy that we have the tools that we have. Lord, thank you for an ability to connect with people. God, if this was a hundred years ago, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this. You know, we wouldn't be able to have this, you know, connection at all. So we thank the Lord that He has He's given us today. We'd be heightened. That's right. Well, we're continuing in a series today called Reconciling the World, where God is gonna show us, demonstrate to us that we have in us the ability to be reconcilers of the world's divisions to bring healing to a divided and divisive world. And today we're gonna to talk about the time. That Jesus almost died at the very, very beginning of his ministry. Do you know this story? It's a time that Jesus almost died at the beginning of his ministry. And he didn't die. He went on, he died on the cross. We know some, it was probably two years after this, three years after this, that he died on the cross. But at the very beginning of his ministry, he almost died. And we're gonna be looking at that today. We're gonna read a chunk of scripture. It's gonna be on the screen behind me, it's out of Luke 4. And I think that it's it's more scripture than I usually read in one, you know, go on a Sunday morning. But I think it's good to build up our endurance for reading scripture. Is that all right? Yeah. It's good to get in the word of God. It's good to get into scripture. Um, and so we're going to be reading uh, about 17 verses this morning. And there's going to be some parts that I invite you to read with me. I remember I was uh, inviting some of our neighbors to come to a Christmas service. I think it was last year. And I went to one neighbor's house and knocked on the door and told me we had a Christmas service going on and invited her. And she said, well, I'm interested in coming, but are are you going to be reading out of the Bible at all? Because I'm (laughs) I'm not so sure about that. And I said, well, I said, well, we are a church and it is Christmas. So, yeah, we'll probably be reading out of the Bible a little bit. Uh, some people want Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with the Bible. Well, this morning, don't worry, we're going to talk about all about Jesus. So go ahead and open your Bibles. I'm going to go to Luke 4. Because you can't talk about Jesus unless you're going to read from the Bible. So here we go. I'm going to read now. This is verses 14 through 30. And I'll let you know when I when I want you to chime in with me. And it should be on the screen. This is what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, this is just the beginning of his ministry. The very previous story to this is that Jesus was tempted in the desert. So he was baptized in the Jordan River by John, and that sort of marks the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And then he goes straight into the desert, and he's tempted for 40 days by the devil in the desert. And then he comes out of the desert, and he begins to start preaching in small different towns. And so he's been preaching for a few, uh, maybe a a few weeks or a few months, we're not sure. But he's been preaching a a small amount of time. It's just the beginning of his ministry. And he returns to Galilee, where he was raised. And the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. People heard about this preacher. And he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, good reputation, good preacher. And he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown, a few hundred people there, fishing town. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Now pause right there. Jesus made church going part of his custom. Isn't that nice? If you want to be like Jesus, make it a part of your custom. Thanks for being here. I appreciate that. And so he came into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, right, it's a big scroll, unrolling it, he found the place Where it is written. Would you read this with me? Go ahead. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Thank you. And then he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were upon him. They were fastened on him. And I can imagine it as the scripture is talking about his reputation is preceding him. And so probably the synagogue's packed. Maybe there's people standing at the windows. They've heard about this preacher. He said some amazing things. They want to see him. And if John Wesley can pack out his churches and George Whitfield can pack out his churches and God bless us, if Joel Osteen can pack out his churches, how do you know that Jesus probably packed out the house yeah. at the synagogue in Nazareth? And they were probably all crowded around and they wanted to hear what he said. And it says their eyes were fastened on him. They're waiting for him to speak. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. Would you read this with me? I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Thank you. Only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up, and they drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Right at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus' life becomes threatened. This isn't the first threat that's going to come on his life. But this is, I mean, this isn't the only threat that's going to come on his life. But this was the first threat that came on his life. In, a, in, a, in his adult life, I should say. Now, that's a crazy story, isn't it? Back in verse 15, it says everyone praised him for his preaching. And then he comes to Nazareth, and it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and his gracious words. But then just a few verses later, verse 28, it, we read all the people in the synagogue were furious, and then they tried to kill him. Man. What did Jesus do? What did He say? Between verse twenty-two and verse twenty-eight, Jesus tells two stories, and I want to talk about those two stories for a little bit. Stories about important prophets from Israel's past. One about a guy named Elijah, and the other one about a guy named Elisha. I know their names are similar, but there's two different guys. And these prophets—they were bigger than life. You know, they healed the sick, they raised the dead they caused the rain to stop they called heaven down from or they called fire down from heaven pretty amazing stuff and at this point in history in the first century they had a reputation sort of like Paul Bunyan they were they were larger than life you know they were held in high regard and Jesus points out an uncomfortable truth to the people in the synagogue that morning which is that at a time of suffering During a famine, these prophets weren't sent to Israelites, they were sent to Gentiles. And even though there were people suffering from leprosy in Israel, Elisha wasn't sent to any Israelite, he was sent to a foreigner, to a Gentile. The very nations that were oppressing Israel, those were the ones that Elijah and Elisha were sent to. God sent aid to Israel's enemies instead of to Israel. And the people could not stand to hear it. Something dangerous happens, people, when we begin to lay a claim to God. When we start to believe that he is our God, that he belongs to us, we weaponize him. And we use them against our enemies. I remember a, a dear friend of mine called me up knowing that I was a pastor and, and said that he was having trouble with somebody at work. Now, now my friend is not currently walking with the Lord. And, and he, he said, there's a Christian at my work who's saying very unchristian things. And could you give me some verses so that I can turn the tables on them, you know? And I said, well... I said, that's not really how it works. I know that it's tempting to weaponize scripture, to turn it into a weapon that we can fight with. It's not exactly how it works. But then I realized that we do that all the time because this is our God and he should be fighting on our side. And if we don't weaponize our faith against our enemies, it's only because we have this eerie, unsettling feeling that maybe God is not on our side. That's what Jonah discovered. Do you remember Jonah? (laughs) He walks into Nineveh, the headquarters of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had just been ravaging Israel. And Jonah walks into their headquarters, walks into their capital city of Nineveh. It would be akin to having Uh, an African American go to a cross burning with the KKK Or, or like having a New Yorker show up at a terrorist cell in Afghanistan in 2001 it was that much of a visceral response and Jonah begins to preach to these people tell them all the evil that they've been doing and what does it say it says that they begin to repent And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful. These people deserve to die. They are my enemies, God. And I knew, and this is why I ran away in the first place, that if I came here and preached, and if they repented, that you would stay your hand. And now, God, it is better for me if I die. Because it's either me or them, and you're sparing their life. So kill me, God. I'd rather die than live knowing that you've forgiven my enemies. Hello. Hello. I thought you were on our side, God. Who are your enemies, church? Who are they? Who are your enemies? We're at a, we were at a small protest last Friday. There was just eight of us in front of Starbucks. I don't know if you saw us there. Holding signs, protesting injustice. And I'm not sure if it was because we were there was fewer of us than had been in previous protests, but people were... The aggression level was higher, let's say that. We were flipped off quite a bit more. A lot of boos. Thumbs down. Oh, my God. One guy sporting a huge Confederate flag came up and idled right next to us. Just let us know he was there. And one man, I saw him coming down one-on-one on on the other side of the street. He was yelling at us. You know, there was a lot of positive responses. A lot of positive responses from people. But more aggression than I've seen before. And this guy's yelling at us from across the street. And then he starts to walk across the side, you know, across the crosswalk. And I'm thinking, oh man, here we go. So something. And he comes up and he's yelling at us. And uh, he gets close to one of the guys that was next to me named Phil. And as he's yelling at him, he realizes that Phil is a Vietnam vet. And he's got the hat and the, you know, the shirt and everything. And so he stops yelling and he and he says, thank you for your service. And then he tells Phil, he says, I, I believe all lives matter. And Phil says, Man, I I agree with you. He said, don't you know that we we all agree with you? What we're trying to say is that black lives have not mattered for a really long time. So if you do believe that all lives matter, then you've got to believe also that black lives matter. And I think there was maybe two more sentences that they exchanged with one another, and then this man walked away. And my hat goes off to Phil. I couldn't believe how easily he de-escalated that situation and and turn a situation that had potential for violence into into something else into something positive who are your enemies church who are they everybody has enemies who are yours see this is what the world says they say fight your enemies and love your friends this is what jesus says love your enemies pray for those who persecute you not because it's a strategy not because it's kind but because God loves his enemies and I'm very glad that God loves his enemies because there was a time that I was his enemy and he loved me God loves his enemies And the people listening to Jesus here in Luke 4, they understand what he's telling them. They get it. Sometimes maybe they get it more than we do. That God is interested in reaching beyond their synagogue, reaching beyond their community, beyond Israel, even passing up widows in Israel to make sure that there's a Gentile widow that gets bread even passing up lepers in Israel to make sure that this one specific man is healed. And it's too much for them to bear. But we shouldn't be surprised. We should be more like Jonah. He understood it. He got it. A lot of people give Jonah bad rap. I think if you were in his place, I think you would understand The Jews here in Nazareth, they should have paid closer attention, I think, to what Jesus was preaching to them. Because if they would have paid closer attention, I think they would have gotten it as well. And so we're going to take this observation about enemies, this challenge that Jesus is presenting, and we're going to look at it as a tool for reconciliation. But it's going to be different than you might think. So you got to stick with me, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. ready, Turn to your other neighbor and say, let's go. All right. You buckled in? I am. Okay. I want to focus on one particular verse that Jesus speaks that should have tipped his hand, that should, should have convinced people of what was going on. And that's verse 18. Can we go back to verse 18? They should have been expecting his words if they'd understand them. Verse eighteen: The spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Just that, just that first part there. And this has always bothered me in some respect. This, this particular sentence: He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It, it bothers me because I've always thought in my mind. On some level. Jesus, the poor people don't need good news. They need food. And housing. And clothing. Why are you giving them good news? People can't eat good news. Jesus. Maybe it's because I. For all the many benefits that I receive in life. Wealth is not one of them. And so I look at Jesus and I say, God, I know people that are poor. Y'all can't eat the gospel. What are you talking about? And I really struggled with that this week as I was looking at this passage. And if we dare to read on in this, which I encourage you to do, take some time, read the rest of Luke 4 and into Luke 5. And Jesus begins to live out exactly what he's talking about in these verses. He begins to set people who are oppressed free. He begins to heal people. He begins to do the work that he's describing in these verses here. But when it comes to preaching good news to the poor, Jesus does something unexpected and extraordinary. And the first story that we find after this passage, the first instance that we have of Jesus preaching. And doing something like preaching good news to the poor comes from Luke 5. And I want to just turn there for a second and I want to read just a few verses out of this. This is Luke 5, starting in verse 27 to verse 29. This is what it says. It says, After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held... A great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating there with him. Now wait a minute. I thought that Jesus was supposed to preach good news to the poor. What are you doing, Jesus? These are the richest people around. Tax collectors in the first century were the wealthiest citizens of their communities. This is what they would do. The Roman government needed taxes from the people. But if you send a Roman soldier to somebody's house to collect taxes, you're going to start a riot. So they got other Jews in the community to be tax collectors. And the Romans would say to the Jewish person, Josh, if you're a tax collector, I'm the Roman official, I would say to Josh, Josh, I want you to charge 10% tax to the people in your community. And Josh is not paid for his work. I don't pay him anything. Josh is paid comes from when he goes to his community, he goes to the Michelsons over there, and he says the Roman government would like 15% of your money. And then he takes the 15%, and he hands 10% to the Romans, and he keeps 5% for himself, and it's a nice little profit. And tax collectors could charge whatever they wanted to. If you thought somebody could pay 50%, you could charge them 50%. If you thought maybe you could just get 11% out of them, well, then that's what you got out of them. And they would cripple people, people that they were at odds with, enemies in their own community, people who maybe talked back to them. Okay, next year I might charge you a few extra percent. And so they funneled money into the Roman Empire. And they undercut the community. They were wealthy, wealthy people. And Jesus is here and he's eating with them. I thought you said you were supposed to be on the side of the poor. These are the people making people poor. What is going on? And it bothers me. I hope it bothers you too. These are oppressors. They're undeserving of good news. They are our enemies. Why are you with them? Why are you on their side? What are you doing? the Pharisees were just as upset as I am. So what says, verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to the disciples, and good for them. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor. Oh, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These tax collectors may be rich in this world, but they are poor. They are poor. You look at their bodies and you say, man, I wish I could afford to go to the doctor. I wish I could eat enough to survive. But I look at them and I see that they are sick. That there is something wrong with their souls. That they are dying inside. There's a sickness inside of them that's going to lead to their death. And you may think that you are righteous. And that this is why God should be on your side, church. But God is on the side of those who are desperate for them. Not those who are righteous, but those who are sinners. Not those who are free, but those who are imprisoned. Not those who can see rightly, but those who are blind. Those who are oppressed by darkness. It is them that Jesus has come to set free. Here's what biblical scholar Richard Linsky wrote about the poor people to whom Jesus preached. He said, It's more than just a state or condition, it is also an attitude of the soul toward God. That attitude that grows out of the profound realization of utter helplessness. These wretched beggars bring absolutely nothing to God but their complete emptiness and need and stoop in the dust for pure grace and mercy only. Those are the ones to whom Jesus preaches. Did you know that in the early church, in our very earliest moments, we used to baptize people naked. And we're baptizing somebody next week, and I I hope that she wears clothes. (laughs) But in the earliest church, they would baptize you naked. You came before the church with absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. No social trappings, no extravagance, no chance to puff yourself up. An acknowledgement of all your flaws. You came before the church and said, I have nothing. Please, I need something. And so even though we're going to baptize, not naked. When we baptize, we baptize in the same attitude. Brianna is nothing but a child of God. She comes before God carrying nothing. Nothing of her own. Only grace alone. Here's the point, friends. One of the most precious tools that we have to repair a divisive world, one of our most powerful weapons to deal a death blow to oppression, is our poverty. Is our poverty. St. Francis of Assisi on his deathbed, when his disciples were gathered around him, they asked him, What is it that you want us to carry on? What's the one thing you want us to continue in? What's the last message that you have for us? And Francis said this, keep poverty. Keep poverty. Keep poverty, church. The world says if you want reconciliation, first gather all the power you can. Destroy your enemies and establish peace. That's how to do it. You drive your enemies out. You establish peace through power. Mm -hmm. Keeping poverty means refusing to use the power of this world to accomplish the work of God. Keeping a poor heart means coming to the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, I am in need of you today. Keeping poverty means seeking out those who are heavy laden with sin. Yes, even seeking out your enemies and offering them the gospel. Keeping a poor heart means coming to a hurting world with humility, with love and compassion in your heart, rather than skepticism, self-regard or defensiveness. Keeping poverty means refusing to be violent, but rather suffering harm for the sake of injustice. takeaways I think that we can learn from from this passage. The first one is that some of us need to learn what it means to love your enemies. Recognize that the enemies that you have in this world are the very ones that God has called you to preach to. And I'm not saying that they're your friends and that they're going to treat you right when Jesus came, he came for his enemies. For those who had set themselves against him. We like hanging out with our friends. But in doing so, we're not really being like Jesus. I'm sure Jesus would have a great life if he just hung out with his friends. The second thing that we need to take away is that some of us need to put down the weapons of this world and keep poverty. That doesn't mean that you don't engage with the world. doesn't mean that at all. But it means that in order to find justice, you cannot seek power. It is very tempting, my friends. And there are people in this world whose desire is for power. And I have noticed over the course of my short life that those people will go to great lengths to convince you that to give them power is to bring about peace. And they will use whatever means necessary to maintain that peace. And God bless us here in the United States even. We oftentimes use power in the name of peace. We oftentimes do that. And on some level, we enjoy watching powerful people attempt to bring about peace. Here's the problem. Power never brings peace. Power only brings force and violence. And at the end of the day, the people who exercise power to bring about peace end up being the ones who oppress the next generation. That's the reality. So if you want a world of reconciliation. If you want a world of hope. Lay. Down your weapons. And move. Under the power of the spirit. In poverty. Of yourself. In poverty of every advantage that you have. And begin. To bring about the kingdom of God on earth. A kingdom of Peace. A kingdom of justice. A kingdom of love and compassion for one another. I talked talk with one person who said that they they voted for Barack Obama back in, whatever that was, 2008. Because they were convinced that that he would bring about an end to racism in the United States. I know that sounds like a very naive thought. And it was naive. Because look where we are today. But we do that all the time. Oh, if this political leader could just get into office or that political leader or if this one could stay into office then we'll have peace. See, it doesn't work, does it? It won't ever work. The kingdom of God is given to you to bring about peace and compassion and love and reconciliation in your communities and your homes humble yourselves before the Lord and before other people, let your heart be moved by compassion and not hatred mourn, lament that's what we talked about last week, lament, mourn prophesy practice poverty in your own life and in your own spirit, let me pray for you then we'll take communion together Lord, we come before you God, just as we were born naked helpless. Lord, completely devoid of the ability to care for ourselves. We come before you as children, as we should, acknowledging Lord, that you have power and we do not. Lord, cause our hearts to be still before you. Cause our lives to be still. And God, if we are holding on to anything, if we are holding on to any privilege, if we are holding on to any power, if we're holding on to any social esteem, Lord, if we are holding on to anything other than you, we lay it down before you and say, Lord, to you and you alone do I give all glory and honor and praise. Lord, come and do your work in our lives, I pray. Be with us, Jesus. One of the greatest examples of power for poverty is the example that Jesus gave us on the cross. When everyone else in the world would have stood up for himself, stuck his feet in the ground, and zapped Every centurion in the land. Jesus died on the cross. He died for you. And so we're going to take communion together. And when we do, we're doing it in remembrance of that moment, in remembrance of Christ's own sacrifice. And so I encourage you. If you don't have one, find one of these cups. Take off the top layer there and take out the little cracker. This, this, my brothers and my sisters, this is the body of Christ, which has been broken for you. For you. Would you take this and would you eat it with me? This right here, this is the blood of Christ. It's poured out for you, his body, his blood, poured out over you so that you might live free. Take this, drink it, remember it. Until Jesus comes again, you will find Christians doing that. I don't know when he's going to come back. It could be next year. It could be a hundred years from now. It could be a thousand years. I really don't know. People who do know, they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know this. Whether it's next month or whether it's ten generations from now, from now until then, you will find Christians doing this. We've done it for the last 2,000 years. We'll do it for another 2,000 years to remind us of the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. Let me pray a blessing over you as we go today. Lord, I thank you for these good, good people. Lord, I thank you for your mercy on their lives. Lord, I ask that you would teach them what it means to keep poverty. Lord, would you teach them what it means to love their enemies, even as you loved us. God, I thank you for an opportunity once again to come before your throne and say, Lord, I have nothing, but only you, Lord, and only your grace and mercy can save my life. And now, church, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. True Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, and now, and forever. Amen. Amen. Go and grace church. Very excited. Next week, 1 p.m., beach day, 6 p.m. service. All right? God bless you. And we're going to baptize Brianna. And she's got to wear clothes. Okay. <laughs> All right. God bless, guys.